Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 144. In this episode, we're talking about living in the shadow of Christian Zionism with Tony Dyke. Tony Dyke is originally from Bethlehem in the West Bank and currently is a residential researcher at Tyndale House in Cambridge, where he's working on his PhD in New Testament. Tony is also a lecturer in biblical studies at Bethlehem Bible College and a networking team member of the International Fellowship for Mission as Transformation. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. Brandon Hurlbert. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation with Tony and talking about Christian Zionism and hearing just a bit about uh, his story. I enjoyed it so much because it, it resonated a lot with my own story, just on the flip side. I, I grew up, you know, in those kind of Christian circles and denominations that, you know, were more Zionist, were more dispensational. So uh, this episode is just, is the thing that I wish I had heard, you know, 10, 15 years ago. This is, this is the story that I wish, you know, the communities that I was a part of, I wish that they could hear, they, they could have heard this story, you know, 15, 20 years ago. I think that would have changed a, a lot of things, uh, including myself, and I would have come to these conversations a lot sooner. Chris, Logan, what were some of your takeaways from our conversation with Tony? I really appreciated hearing Tony's reflections on wh what it was like uh, to be working in uh, that ministry space uh, between uh, cultures uh, as a uh, Palestinian Christian, not f fully fitting into this this idea of Zionism and and that that is espoused by Christian Zionism, but but also not being part of uh, what everyone then construes as the you know the Arab Muslim etc. Uh, and it, actually in this space of trying to be faithful as a as a Palestinian Christian and and also then how that uh, informs his approach to biblical interpretation uh, and his work in the Book of Acts. Yeah, I really appreciated how Tony spoke about his experience of shock learning that Christian Zionism is as prevalent as it is, uh, especially amongst evangelical circles. Tony will explain to us how you know, people who come to Christianity from different contexts are surprised at the idea that Christian Zionism is a necessary outworking of, of Christian faith. And uh, he's uh, going to suggest that it is not. So yeah, I love this discussion and uh, you have a lot to look forward to. And with that, here's our conversation with Tony Tyke. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Tony. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, why don't you just begin by sharing uh, with our listeners a little about yourself uh, and a little bit about your story. So um, I was uh, born in Jerusalem, bred in Bethlehem. Uh, that makes me a Bethlehemite because in uh, our culture, I identity comes from uh, an affiliation to a clan. So in Bethlehem, you have seven main clans. And if you are uh, you belong to one of them, uh, then you are a Bethlehemite. So I'm a Bethlehemite. I'm a Palestinian. Uh, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. Um, and as I grew up, let me start with how that happened because I did grow up in a, a Christian family in a Roman Catholic family, but then I've been a committed Christian for the last um, 12 years now, since 2010. 
my my childhood dream actually was to become a Franciscan monk. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. And when people would ask me, what did I want to do when I grow up? I would just say, I want to. Uh, and it was in the Catholic Church that I learned how to read the New Testament. And my uh, passion and calling, I think, started from there. Uh, not as a New Testament researcher or a scholar, but as a minister, someone whose life uh, is dedicated to ministry. Uh, but then I left faith. So in childhood, I did have a relationship uh, with Christ. Uh, but then I, I left faith, I abandoned faith completely. Uh, and that increased. So by, by uh, university, when I uh, went, I, I did an undergraduate degree in computer engineering at Bill State University. And uh, by the time I was towards the end of my degree, I, I reached the point of full atheism. Uh, although this is very hard in Palestine, we are a very religious society, so it's very hard for anyone uh, in Palestine saying there is no God. So I was an agnostic, but I did reach a, a point of atheism. And uh, the more I reflect about it, uh, I am amazed at how uh, religions come, you know, from far away into Palestine. So I was at that point influenced by New Age teachings. Uh, that, you know, emphasize the self and, uh, you know, believing in yourself and having this positive energy through which you can do anything that you want, etc. And I remember, to cut the long story short, I was with a friend of mine uh, and we were um, talking about life and issues of life and I started reflecting with him and we decided to put a documentary I don't know if you know it by the name of The Secret. So we, we started watching that documentary together. Yeah, it's an American documentary. We were in Palestine. It's a bit puzzling uh, how we, we were influenced by uh, this type of uh, teaching. And as I started reflecting on my life, I remember this thought that came to my mind, that moment of atheism, pure atheism, where I started saying, uh, look at me, you know, I'm, I'm successful, I have anything, you know, I, I can do anything that I want in my life, who can stop me, and where is God in this, you know, I can do all of this without God, uh, so there must be no God, therefore I am God, because I can do whatever I want, and at that moment, I just saw the cross in front of me, that was the, the, the you know, the moment of awakening, uh, and I just felt God's love, and the intellectual message that came is that this is what makes God, God, you know? So I was at the peak of my arrogance thinking that, you know, uh, because I can do anything that I want and I'm successful, therefore I'm God. And the message was, no, because of this, I am God. Because of this unfathomable sacrificial love, this is what makes God, God. And a few months later, I started reading the New Testament again, Gospel of John, Chris will like this. Uh, I, I was reading through the Gospel of John one Friday afternoon, and I just was struck again by the brokenness and the humility of this God, of, of Christ, of Jesus. And I, I just went to went into my knees and decided to, you know, surrender my life to Christ. And uh, yeah, started basically this. This uh, was a turning point in my life. I mean, I had, I was, I, I finished my engineering degree. Uh, although 
when I had this initial vision, I when I woke up from it, it was quite dramatic. My Muslim friend who was in my room was like scared. So he was like washing my face. He took me to the toilet and wake up. So it was like a state of ecstasy or whatever. And when I woke up, I told him, I'm not gonna continue working on that, on uh, our project. I'm gonna cut everything and I'm gonna, you know, go and become a priest. And and at that point, I didn't have any Christian friend around me. I, I had like no one. So I, I just, I, I remembered one person uh, that I, and like an acquaintance, not, not even a close friend who went to Catholic seminary and left. So I called him the next day, I told him, man, Con- connect me with a priest. I want to be a monk or a priest. I want to leave like, well, what I'm doing. But eventually this didn't happen. I became a Protestant in, uh, instead of a Catholic priest. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that experience actually is a very defining experience for my life. Uh, and I am here because of it. I am doing what I'm doing now because of it. Like I, I had like in, in terms of my career, even I had like, I, after graduating, I did work for a few years in computer science and I did computer science research. Uh, but then because of my faith, because of, of, of that incident in my life, I just decided to stop. I initially wanted to do it immediately, but it took me a few years to sort of make, make the shift. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that story. I, I'm, I know that many of our listeners um, have had similar religious experiences. On our episode last week, uh, Shadia shared a bit about her own experience going back into a church, uh, going into an evangelical church and, and kind of being met mm. with things that she didn't expect, uh, in, namely Christian Zionism. Uh, mm. Now that happened, you know, in uh, Canada. Um, but was that... S- is that happening in Palestine? Is that happening? Was that happening in churches that you kind of went back into? Um, or what was your experience kind of coming back to church uh, after such a long time? Yeah, I think that's Christian Zionism is definitely part and parcel of uh, the the story and the testimony of every Palestinian evangelical. Because something that we are confronted with. So in in my own journey, what happened is that when, when I came to faith, I was on my own. So I didn't have any Christian friends, and I started attending my Catholic church. I went to Roman Catholic, uh, you know, youth youth groups, etc. So I was, I remember I was that time in Ramallah, the main economic capital in, of the West Bank, and there's this historical street uh, where all of the churches are. And I remember in those early days of faith, I was walking through that street and crying to the Lord, crying to God, uh, where is your church? <laughs> it's, it's so confusing, you know, like all kinds of denominations, Eastern and Western and Protestant and Baptist. And at that time, I, I couldn't even distinguish clearly between them. And I, I started going to a Catholic church. And then at that time, my thinking was, okay, I need something simpler, just something, you know, focusing on Jesus and the Bible. So I was attracted to the, to the evangelical faith. I basically knocked the door. I knocked the door of a Baptist church. I entered there and I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed many elements of uh, the evangelical spirituality. But what happened is, because I was on my own, pretty much, 
I was like most of the discipleship happened basically through my own reading of the Bible. So, and uh, through the internet. So I remember uh, those days when I was like searching, you know, Googling around, you know, to understand more about Christianity. And then I would find this pastor, you know, like powerful evangelistic sermon, you know, preached with passion and everything. And then towards the end of his sermon, you know, he would pray for Israel, collect money for Israel. Uh, you know, or, or this even, I, I remember an Arab pastor even, uh, you know, a sermon from the book of Acts, where I am doing now my research about prayer, you know, and the power of prayer. And it shook me, you know, in those early days, you're very like a sponge. And then I Googled his name to find that he is an ultra-Christian Zionist and part of Christians United for Israel. And now if you, if you ask an average Palestinian about Christian Zionism, most people would tell you, this is a cult. You know, this is like, something like Jehovah's Witnesses at, at the periphery of Christianity. Right? The, the, this is what the priests taught us, actually. You know? uh, this is not Christianity. This is just, you know, uh, 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 at the periphery. This is a cult. This is, this is not part of our religion, right? And then my shock was when I went, uh, when I started hearing evangelicals and became an evangelical, that this is part and part of this at the center of evangelicalism, you know, and now Pew Research proves that, you know, a recent study that was highlighted also in Christianity Today shows that 80% of evangelicals in America would comfortably answer yes to the question of, did God give the land to Israel, which is basically you know, the, the theological premise that legitimizes and justifies the uh, Israeli occupation and the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. So, so it was a big shock. It was a huge stumbling block. Um, it still is, actually. Uh, and that was, sadly, the beginning of my journey. And, like, my, my story of faith, actually, in, in these 12 years is a story of faith in the shadow of Christian Zionism. Because uh, two years later, so in 2010, I came to Christ. January 2012, I joined a mission organization, a Western mission organization. I went with them to East Asia, spent with them a, a year and a half. And there I was, I mean, uh, I was discriminated against because I was a Palestinian. They didn't want to put me, put my badge as a Palestinian. Like they, because this is an international or, or, organization. Uh, missionaries from 60 nations are represented, so everyone has their name and their country. So they wanted to put, when I arrived there, I saw my, my name and between brackets, Jordan. I told them, well, <laughs> I'm not Jordanian, I'm Palestinian, and actually I'm Palestinian from the West Bank, and here is my Palestinian passport issued by the Palestinian Authority. You know, I don't know if in the previous episodes you spoke about the different kinds of Palestinians. So, Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, we have a, a passport actually that's issued by the Palestinian Authority. So it was a big deal uh, to put Palestine there. And then when I joined the organization, started being active in ministry. And, you know, the, we had a, a communication department that wanted to highlight some of the ministries that I led and I was involved in. And uh, what, 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 in, 
one of those ministries I remember we did, I was back then just focusing on the verbal proclamation of the gospel, evangelism, etc. And the ministry that I led and they wanted to highlight was basically about evangelism, um, people accepting Christ, and then they wanted to write an article about it to highlight this uh, ministry. Uh, and the article started by Tony Dehek, my, my name, between brackets, Palestine, led a team, blah, 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 blah etc. They put it on, on the front page of the website. The next day, I opened the website to uh, have a snapshot of it for memory, and the article disappeared. So I went to the, the whole thing. The whole thing. It, they, didn't like, just, they didn't just take out Palestine. They just took out the whole thing. The whole, uh, the whole article disappeared. It wasn't there. It wasn't even in the, you know, the older articles, you know, the second page, third page. So I went to the communication department. Okay. What happened? We received instructions from the leadership that we cannot include you in any article, in any video, anything unless you agree to put Jordan beside your name or Israel. And they told me bluntly that I, I was friends with the head of the communication department. And he, he told me uh, that uh, a donor actually uh, emailed them and saying, well, there's no such thing as Palestine. So upsetting donors obviously is a red line. And the, the sad thing, and imagine I was like, you know, three years old in my faith. It, it was a, a huge struggle because after that, you know, the Lord started opening doors for ministry more and more. Like we were involved in big ministries. Like I, I led the whole prison ministry for six months in the Philippines, in Olongapo. We, like people, uh, you know, were evangelized, uh, Bible studies, people got baptized, 40 inmates got actually baptized in the prison like a big ministry, they did videos about it. And, and I was the leader, the initiator actually of the ministry, the co-initiator with the local pastor. And they did, the, the videos are still there. Nothing about me, like nothing, no mention, nothing, you know? <laughs> Obviously on the present level, you know, part of the, you know, the Christian journey is, you know, the sort of this, uh, you know, the, the, the breaking of the ego and you're working for God, you're working towards the other. So it did some stuff here, you know, it did some important things here, but it was horrible. It was an act of discrimination. I mean, like, and, I, and these people, like I volunteered my time with them. I was in full-time ministry. No one was paying, like they weren't paying me. I was like doing my own fundraising Right, I was fully volunteer, and so it was. Uh, it was quite. Uh, I mean, I can go on and uh, on and on with the stories uh, from that period of my life. Christian Zionism is a stumbling block. Block is a big stumbling block for Palestinians, uh, and it's part and parcel of uh, the story of, I would say, any Palestinian evangelical. It's something that shocks us. Something that. Uh, frankly, it's something that is horrific for us. When you hear the phrase, Palestine doesn't exist, how does that make you feel, especially when that comes from another Christian? 
I mean, that's, that's the struggle of indigenous people everywhere, the invisibilization of indigenous people. Like, we are a problem, you know, <laughs> like we are a problem in Palestine. You know, it is like the, the Zionist, like Palestine was colonized through the motto, like the main motto under which the colonization of Palestine happened is that this is a land without people, for the people without land. You know, so we are invisible or we are second class humans or like it's part of the narrative. Now, it, it is outrageous for, for, for me when I hear it from uh, a Christian because there is high moral and ethical expectations from Christian, from Christians. And my, my brother now who's in a journey, uh, started going to church and investigating Christian faith. <clears throat> he, he reminds me of, of that, like his state of shock. Like he can't understand like how they don't know, how they don't know. And like, and sometimes I even get frustrated. Oh man, they just don't know. <laughs> like there's this, like they're Christians. Like they, like, this is like, these people are the light of the world, you know? <laughs> And plus for us Palestinians, the Palestinian Christians who grew up in traditional churches, uh, Catholic or Orthodox, the emphasis was ethics, you know, Christian ethics. This is what they taught us. This is what they repeated. This is what they emphasized more than theological uh, matters, you know, more than maybe even personal relationship with God, etc. You know, the emphasis was ethics you know this is what makes you christian this is what distinguishes uh, you know, this is what distinguishes us from others that we love our enemy we love our neighbor as ourselves we love each other as christ loved us and died for us you know so it's unfathomable for for us how can you be a christian you know and support the ethnic cleansing of palestine the palestinian nakba uh, how can you be a christian and support the invasion of iraq and do it in, in the name of God. Like these are things that are unfathomable in our context. Because what defines you as a Christian is your ethic. The, the, this, is, this is how we understand Christianity. As an American, it's so weird because like, of course we supported Iraq. Of course, like that was maybe not the most Christian thing we could do, but it definitely was the Christian thing at the time. American Christians supported the, the, Iraq, the invasion of, uh, of Iraq for various reasons. I know that at certain churches, um, the invasion of Iraq, especially in dispensational churches, the invasion of Iraq, you know, was signaled end times events. And it signaled, you know, uh, kind of dispensationalist understandings of the book of Revelation uh, and, and various, you know, Old Testament prophecies. Um, much the same is true with, you know, we saw this with Trump moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, like this signals the end times. And so even, you know, this is why I think why it's, it's so important to talk about Christian, uh, Christian Zionism um, is because it actually affects people's lives. It, it affects you, your life personally, uh, just in what you've shared, but also it, it strangely affects political events in countries uh, halfway around the world from America. Um, but it's nevertheless, it's this American Christian belief and understanding of the Bible, understanding of the Christian faith and Christian ethics. I think you've rightly pointed out um, you would, world consequences. You, you would be surprised, Brandon, if I tell you, and maybe you would laugh at me now, <laughs> that I was shocked the first time I heard 
that real believers, genuine believers, this is how it was, you know, uh, explained to me that there are genuine believers who support war. I, I remember my Christian friend was sort of discipling me. I think this was my first year or my second year of faith. She told me, man, you know that there are Christians who support war. I was like, what? Yeah, how? <laughs> I know this might seem hilarious to you. <laughs> and I, I, I laugh at my sons now, but, you know, and, and I think I wasn't alone. You know, it's just Christianity. Again, we are taught like at the center of the gospel. The gospel is gospel ethics. You know, that's, that's how we were taught Christianity. You know, obviously it, it is... It can lead to problematic things when you reduce the gospel to ethics or when you reduce gospel just to theology and personal salvation. Both directions are wrong, right? You know, that I remember, like in my childhood, I knew very little Bible, but I knew Matthew 5 to 7, you know? So for us, that's the gospel. So th th therefore, we are shocked when we hear that, when, when we hear about this triumphalist Christianity that wants to conquer the world and invade the world in the name of Christ, like George Bush evoked God's name in his uh, invasion of Iraq. And I remember one of the volunteers at Bethlehem Bible College uh, who was inclined toward Christian Zionism at some point in her life, she told me she, at, at, the, at, at the election of George W. Bush, her church, they had like night vigil, uh, vigils, like prayers, you know, and fasting. And like she, she told me for a month or 40 days, they were fasting and on the floor, the Pentecostals, like passionately. And I was shocked, you know, <laughs> like, like you, you can't understand the state of shock, you know, that happens to us when we hear these things. Because we, we like... And, and the more I think about it, I find that it's so like, like it's so truthful. That's the essence of Christianity. Like, what is like, what did Christ leave us with? You know, love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> you know, love each other as I have loved you. That's it. Like, that's that's what the Christian ethics is about. That's what Jesus left us with. Like, it is not. It doesn't need a PhD in New Testament to. Discover this. I mean, this is the center of the ethics of Jesus Christ. So it is shocking for for us when we see uh, sisters and brothers from other parts of the world supporting war in the name of God, the same God that we worship, supporting the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in the name of the God that that we worship. It's it's just a shock. I find I find this interesting as someone not coming from the uh north american context in that a lot of the what what is explicit in um christian zionism in north america um such you know such as the, the strong support for israel it just isn't quite so prevalent in uh australia for example um i note in the last week uh the australian government shifted its embassy back from um West uh, Jerusalem uh, back to Tel Aviv and it was done without a huge amount of fanfare. Um, there wasn't any significant uh, sort of theological import uh, given to it. There was a significant amount of hand wringing from some parts of the 
of society about what it would look like uh, politically, but not so much theologically. Um, interested in your reflections, you're now in the UK, uh, and from um, our conversations before, uh, you've had experience in other parts of the world. Uh, what does that look like outside of this sort of heavily charged environment of North American Christian Zionism, uh, and dare we say, you know, which has significant overlap with white Christian nationalism in that regard, uh, and also in the sort of intimate circumstances of Palestine and Israel itself, where it's very hard to get away from these sort of uh, questions. What does this look like outside of uh, those contexts for you? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. I mean, unfortunately, my my experience with the prolification of Christian Zionism is different. I I just find it everywhere I go. Uh, I I've lived in Bolivia for around five years. Uh, the official our official denomination is a dispensationalist denomination. Uh, the, the seminary in Cochabamba of our denomination, they are taught dispensationism. Seminaries in La Paz, in the capital, still use the Schofield Reference Bible. When we present about Palestine, evangelicals are in a state of surprise. The reaction is different, I will explain in a, in a bit, but theologically they are challenged. You know, this is what, not what they are used to. You know, even like sometimes when I am presented, you know, when I want to share our perspective, which is nothing new, like our reading of the Bible, you know, that is Christ-centered. We see all of the promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's the, you know, uh, the classical Pauline and Palestinian hermeneutic of reading the Old Testament. So when when we speak about these things, which is your, you know, traditional theology, I am introduced as offering a non-traditional theology like the <laughs> i i remember vividly people introducing me that tony now will offer us a different perspective than the traditional perspective in our churches the the church next door literally the pentecostal church next door to where we were living did not have any cross any verse inside but had a big flag of israel near the pulpit in Bolivia, in Cochabamba, Bolivia. And there is a, a book, I can't remember the author now, discussing the same phenomena in Africa. You know, this in, in the sentiment towards Israel and Africa. Why? Because evangelicalism, you know, gets exported. This theology, you know, this uh, Christian Zionist theology, I don't want to uh, reduce all evangelicalism to this, this Christian Zionist theology gets exported. You know, and people who have, you know, uh, 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 certain kinds of eschatologies, they have more this, you know, urge and eagerness, you know, to go and evangelize so that the world would come to an end. So there are lots of missionary activities happening in those circles. And actually in uh, the history of missions in Latin America, for example, the, the early on, very early on, dispensationists were you know, at the forefront of the mission movement. So it is It is everywhere. It's uh, like now we're having, in, in two weeks, we're having a big conference in Chile to discuss Christian Zionism. Among Palestinians, descendants of Palestinians in evangelical churches, we have, we've, we've encountered Zionists, you know, people who were offended when we shared our perspective on 
things. You know, these are third generation, fourth generation Palestinian Christians who immigrated, you know, their forefathers immigrated a uh, hundred or uh, 120 years ago, and now they're in evangelical churches and they believe this classical dispensationalist uh, theology. Similarly, in the uh, Philippines, I remember I was in a church and th that, that, that was quite shocking for me. Um, a church in the Philippines, in the Philippines, in Olongapo, uh, and they were visited by this uh, Israeli preacher, a Messianic Jewish preacher, who was like a former general in the army or I don't know what. And this preacher made them kneel down and repent of the Holocaust. This is Olongapo, the Philippines, not Germany or <laughs> like until now, I do not understand, you know, and I, I have very dear friends who went to such conferences. Maybe you are also familiar, you know, that you know, the preacher makes the audience repent over the Holocaust, you know. So all of this use of human suffering for the advancement of political agendas and for advancement of more oppression, you know. Uh, so I, 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 I don't know the situation in Australia, but frankly, wherever I travel, Christian Zionism is just in my face. Now, the difference, and I should say this, is that in Latin America, for example, in Bolivia, when we speak, when we share our perspective, people are easier to accept, you know, they are more responsive. And some people say, wow, you're, you're saying our, our stories, you know, because Bolivia is, is majority indigenous. So they immediately identify, you know, wow, this is very similar to what happened with us. So, uh, and, and also to be honest, like I, I must say part and parcel of our ministry at Bethlehem Bible College is to speak about these things, is to challenge Christian Zionism. And even in the West, in Europe, even in North America, there is a majority among evangelicals who are just sentimentally pro-Israel, you know, because they put a simplistic, you know, equal sign between biblical Israel and the modern state of Israel. These are not militantly Christian Zionists, Christians united for Israel. So when we share with them, many, many people change. Like they, they would just tell us, I never, I, I didn't know that. I, I never heard this uh, perspective. Obviously, there, there are many who, who are, you know, are militantly Christian Zionists, you know, movements like Christians United for Israel. These would comfortably call themselves were Zionists. They would lay their hands on tanks. They would support the Israeli military. I mean, John Hagee was in, uh, like he offered a prayer in the moving of the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I mean, he was there. So uh, you, you have this kind of Christian Zionism and you have the middle of the road that uh, frankly also, I, I'm not sure if we need to keep calling them Christian Zionists. who have this, you know, sort of vague emotional connection with Israel. They don't understand exactly where it comes from. Just, you know, maybe sermons they've heard, you know, simple reading of the Bible of the Old Testament and connecting the Old Testament with what they hear in the news. These people normally respond positively, wh whether they're uh, from Europe or Latin America. I don't know if you know the, the work of Robert Smith, uh, who's now the supervisor of, of my wife, who's doing her PhD is on Christian Zionism. 
And his argument is that Christian Zionism is intertwined with American exceptionalism. So exactly, like using the Old Testament, like we are now you know, the chosen people of God, you know, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, we are, we, are, we are exceptional in the world. I mean, this, the same kind of logic of American exceptionalism is often applied to Israel, right? Uh, exactly. Israel is seen as a Western outpost yeah. and in, in the East yeah. uh, as an affront against the East in, on, its own, on its own land. Yeah. Uh, and so because, you know, and this is where you get this rhetoric of like, oh, it's the only democracy in the Middle East and like, you know, all these, all these like really misleading and just not true statements. Exactly. Um, to, that's, that's a very good point, actually. That's yeah, to point. justify um, ethnic cleansing, right? Israel yeah. is really, and e even the kind of rhetoric about ancient Israelites, ancient Israelite theology and the, and the Hebrew Bible being the foundation of Western culture. Yeah. Uh, plays directly into the logic of ethnic cleansing that in the same way that the ancient Israelites had a, you know, a truly just a really advanced kind of theological system in contrast to all the idiot uh, ancient Near Eastern neighbors. Uh, so also today, ancient Israelites are really a Western society surrounded by all these savages and they need to they need to expand to get rid of them. It's the, sa it's the same kind of colonial logic. Yeah, yeah. Did you hear the comments of uh, Borel, the, Joseph Borel, the high representative of uh, the European Union for Foreign Affairs? He, he should watch. <laughs> he said that what Europe, he uh, Europe, Europe is a garden. We have built a garden of social cohesion, of economic prosperity, of like it's like the peak. And the rest of the world is a jungle. That was like, <laughs> wow, you know. And the jungle is invading the garden. This is exactly what what, what he. The said. garden is built over the graves of a bunch of people, though. So that's kind of a problem. But <laughs> yeah, but but wait a minute. See how he continues. And his argument was: we can't just isolate ourselves and build walls because no matter how high the wall is. You know the the jungle will still invade the garden. So the 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 solution, what we need to do, is for the garden to go to the jungle. So again, colonialism again. You know, so like a justification. You know, we are the enlightened. We are the garden. Therefore, we want to go out and educate those savages. You know tame the jungle and make try to make it a garden like ours. Bring them the peace of Eden by <laughs> trampling okay. and destroying them. Yikes. Um, so, Tony, do you want to share with our listeners why you don't live in Bethlehem anymore? Yes, well, uh, when Sarah and I got married back in 2015, our, uh, our goal was to go back immediately and live in Bethlehem. So uh, we got married January 2015, uh, February or March, Feb February 2015, the, the next month immediately we moved to Bethlehem. In March, I started working with Bethlehem Bible College with Sarah. And I remember we were talking that, yeah, that's, that's it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll be staying in Palestine for a decade or two. We're going to do our PhDs long distance, as most people do. Uh, and we even uh, started building our own house. Uh, so it was for us like a permanent thing. 
but unfortunately, to my great surprise, even although I'm a Palestinian, uh, basically my wife, uh, we were forced to leave Palestine in uh, May 2015, in, in May 2017, sorry. So after 27 months of arriving to Palestine, uh, May 2017, we needed to leave. Uh, and we left on uh, a two-way ticket to Bolivia, waiting for the Israelis to issue Sara a visa. And that, so it was just the idea is to go for three months, stay in Bolivia for three months, wait for her visa, and then come back. And those three months uh, extended to five years. Uh, why is that? Because Israel is an apartheid state. And now it's a matter of fact. Uh, Palestinians have been uh, saying this for ages uh, but now we have solid reports from human rights organizations palestinian uh, the israeli human rights organization and then two international ones amnesty international and human rights watch uh, explaining to the world that this is apartheid and apartheid is not just a direct analogy with south africa it's uh, part and parcel of international law uh, and it's a crime against humanity and apartheid is discrimination is to discriminate uh, between people based on their ethnicity or race so what is happening in the west bank is that israel enforces on the population of the west bank two kinds of laws the palestinians are under israeli military law and the the jewish settlers the 600 or 700,000 Jewish settlers are under Israeli civil law. So if I was uh, a Jewish settler living on Bethlehem land uh, in the settlement of Gilo, for example, or Har Homa, or all of this, uh, any settlement surrounding Bethlehem, I would have the right to bring my, my wife and there is a, a procedure, you know, a couple of years, she will get citizenship, etc and we are done you know uh, but because i'm a palestinian the only thing that the israelis could that, that the israelis offer us under the israeli military law is a tourist visa and actually we were told by an israeli officer that we give you this visa to visit your husband to visit him and this visit finished that's why this so this visitor visa is basically uh, a limited visa, it's a B2 visa issued through the Israeli military to spouses of Palestinians. You're not allowed to work on uh, this visa. You are not allowed to use Ben-Gurion uh, airport. You are not allowed to drive a uh, car, etc., etc. Uh, and this visa expires every six months. So we needed to renew it. We renewed it uh, three times, three or four times. Uh, and it's renewable only up to 24 months. And after the 24 months, we needed to leave. So basically what happened exactly is that Sarah entered as a tourist for three months, and then we renewed that visa six months, again, six months, six months, and then six months. So 24 months, 27 months in total, and then we needed to leave because that's it. It doesn't get renewed more than that. Now, when we tried to re-enter, you know, we were waiting for a visa. The Israelis rejected uh, Sarah's visa.
uh, we appealed, they never replied, and then we tried to contact, uh, we, we basically contacted almost every embassy, every Israeli embassy in Latin America, and they told us, we cannot issue you this like a uh, tourist visa, they told my wife, because you're married to a Palestinian, you need to apply through the Israeli military. I contacted the Israeli military by email, the headquarters in Tel Aviv, the Kogat, uh, and they basically said, oh, we, we can't receive your application. Uh, you, you need to go according to the Oslo Peace Accords. What complicates the Palestinian issue is that, you know, the, the Israelis have this weird agreement with the Palestinians. So they quoted the Oslo Peace Accords that states that I need to go and submit through the Palestinians. And then we went to the Palestinians and the Palestinians, like the, the, the fact is, is that Israel stopped receiving those applications for the last two to three years. And I'm talking about just visit visas, just visit. So even for Sarah to visit the West Bank, she wasn't offered a tourist visa just to visit. Oh and we, we needed to apply through the military. The military refused to receive our, our application. We went to the Palestinians and the Palestinians told us, you know, the Israelis just received from us for Christians in uh, Christmas and Easter. And it's been two years or three years uh, that they haven't done that. So keep coming every feast, you know, every Christmas and every Easter and any moment that they start accepting your, you know, uh, applications, we will send yours. So that's just to visit, right? And then we are trying to apply for what we call family reunification, you know, like to get Sarah residency. And that has been stopped since year 2000. So 22 years, Israel hasn't issued residencies for Palestinians. Only recently, you know, a few months ago, they restarted this issue and this is where we are now. We submitted an application and we are waiting. So. It's been five years now. There seems an obvious incentive there to be like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like let you have kids in our country. Yeah. You know, like a Knesset member once said, "We want minimum Palestinians and maximum land." That's the Israeli strategy. This is, this is demographic engineering. You know, like you, like the Palestinians are a threat. You know, Israel now they passed a law that states that Israel is a Jewish state. You know, so it's for, for, for us, from our perspective, it's no longer a democracy. No, it is not a state for all of its citizens. It's a Jewish state, you know, the state of the Jews. So how can you get, how can you be in a Jewish state that has 50% Palestinians? So you, you want as minimum Palestinians as possible because you wanted a Jewish state. And that's the Zionist dream from like the foundational text of Zionism, you know, by, by Theodor Herzl is their Judenstadt, you know, the Jewish state. This is what they want. And that's why the ethnic cleansing of Palestine happened. You know, the uh, 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 Jews didn't immigrate in the 20s and the 30s, you know, these massive amounts, you know, like uh, of, of Jews coming flooding the country they didn't come to live among us they came they started building settlements they wanted to establish an ethnically exclusive jewish state in order to, eth to establish an ethnically exclusive jewish state on the land inhabited by people from other ethnicities you need to push these uh, people out and this is continuing now this is like this is the ongoing nakba you know you need to push palestinians out now israel 
is like there is no it, it's more difficult for israel now to uh, to repeat 1948 again to uh, you know to like the, because back then and ben gurion said you know we are waiting for the opportune time you know there was a historical moment where waging war and going village by village and kicking and depopulating the villages massacring etc was like they chose the opportune time you know but now you know the whole world is watching so they they do that in more sophisticated ways you know through enforcing certain laws you know for for example if if you are a resident of jerusalem you know the the easiest people to lose their residency is the are are the jerusalemites if you leave for for a couple of years they would tell you oh, you uh, you 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 are no longer a resident of jerusalem you know there are five types of Palestinians with different with different IDs. You know, there's the West Bank, Gaza, Jerusalem, the Palestinians of 1948 who have Palestinian who has who have uh, Israeli passports, and there are the Palestinians of the of the diaspora, the refugees, with uh, refugee cards or other kinds of documents. And the the Jerusalemites are among the hardest because Israel wants, especially Jerusalem, to be Jewish as Jewish as it can get. That's why they want, like, there are full neighborhoods that they want to depopulate now, you know, in order to make Jerusalem more Jewish. So all of that is the ongoing Nakba of the Palestinian people, the ongoing ethnic lending of Palestine. So, Tony, your research is in the Book of Acts. The narrative that's recorded for us in Acts does seem to have a similar sort of engagement with uh, questions of ethnic discrimination, uh, certainly in the early part, uh, we have the question of the uh, the Greek-speaking widows uh, versus the Jewish-speaking widows um, or the Hellenistic widows, however you want to construe those. We mm-hmm. then have the questions at, at the Jerusalem Council uh, regarding uh, food laws, etc. You know, how, how do you see your research in Acts speaking into this environment, uh, this, especially this heavily politically charged environment uh, that you're talking about? In the narrative of Acts, I think what we can learn from Acts, uh, especially in our Palestinian context, is the challenge of this ethnocentric theology, the theology that portrays God as a God of favoritism, which is what Christian Zionism is. Christian Zionism portrays that God still favors a race over another, just based on their ethnicity. You know, he gives them land, he gives them privileges just based on, uh, on their race. And uh, the church, I think, in the first century went through a similar situation, had a similar theology, you know, that puts uh, ethnicity at the center. That's why in the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, we don't see the gospel reaching, re- reaching the Gentiles. Only in Acts 10 do we see uh, the gospel preached to other nations. And what happens then is that Peter changes his theology, you know, the, the, this ethnocentric theology of the church gets challenged. When Peter, enter, uh, when Peter enters into the house of Cornelius, God opens his eyes and in Acts 10, uh, verse 34, you know, then Peter began to speak to them. This is the beginning of his evangelistic sermon. Before he could even evangelize them, the first thing that he said, I truly... I, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. 
but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know, so that theological transformation happened first before the proclamation of the gospel. And I think this is what the church needs now. You know, this, this theological tra transformation, like we need, and I say it bluntly, we need to get rid of, ethno of ethnocentric theologies. We need to get rid of Christian Zionism. You know, Christian Zionism has no place in Christian faith. So in light of living in the shadow of Christian Zionism, what about reading the Bible in the shadow of Christian Zionism? What's mm -hmm. one thing about living in that shadow that has changed your reading of scripture? Wow. Okay, that's, uh, that's a deep question. Let me point to two things. Living in the shadow of Christian Zionism made me more attached to a, Christ, to a Christological hermeneutic. That, you know, Christian Zionism, uh, you know, we, we often critique Christian Zionism that it's, you know, uh, colonial theology because it justifies, legitimizes colonialism and imperial theology that is imposed on us. Uh, we often critique it as a, a theology that promotes violence, that uh, twists the gospel from, in the words of the Kairos document, from good news into a weapon, you know, that is, you know, as uh, like the, the gospel becomes a harbinger of death instead of a harbinger of, a, of good news. Uh, but also what Christian Zionism does is that it marginalizes Christ. You know, it brings, it puts ethnicity at the center of the gospel rather than Jesus Christ. So no longer, so basically, uh, the promises, the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in what? You know, like, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant? Like, do we take Galatians 3.16 seriously or not? You know, like, hey, Galatians 3.16, everyone celebrates John 3.16. Palestine is love, John 3.16. And Galatians 3.16, that verse where Paul says, and the promises were given to Abraham and to the seed in singular, this Midrashic interpretation, you know, and he doesn't say to the seeds referring to many, but to one that is in Jesus Christ. You know, this very Christ-centered interpretation. So my question is that we see the promises of the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus Christ partially and partially in, a, in Theodore Herzl or only in Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's what is at stake. I, I, I see the Old Testament. I see... The promises, I see the main covenants finding their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and nothing else. So that's that's the first point. And this is actually ABC Christianity. Like this is nothing new. This is not fresh <laughs> reading. This is your, uh, you know, classical interpretation of uh, uh, the Old Testament through a Christological lens. Uh, the other thing is the emphasis on justice in the Bible that I feel, and this is where my research is, um, sometimes when, uh, when, when we come, especially to the New Testament, uh, when, when we think of the notion of righteousness and our translations in English and in Arabic do not help us, we forget that righteousness is justice, you know? Uh, 
like I, I take the, the mandate that is expressed for, for example, in Psalm 82 very seriously. You know, how long will you defend uh, the oppressor you know, and show partiality, uh, you know, defend the weak and the marginalized? The, the psalmist said very clearly, uh, the work, uh, working for justice and standing in solidarity with the oppressed and the marginalized is part and parcel of our mission and our mandate and our ethical imperative. Uh, so these things are highlighted and I'm grateful for our scriptures, you know, when I... Uh, read them in the shadow of Christian Zionism. You know, they are not Zionist scriptures. They are not colonial scriptures. They don't justify uh, um, ethnic cleansing. They, they can be used. They can be evoked. They can be misused to justify ethnic cleansing. But um, taken seriously, taken like if we take the ethical teachings of the Bible seriously, there's no place for Christian Zionism or any justification of ethnic cleansing. I mean, and at the end of the day, yes, we have Joshua, we have uh, the wars and judges, we have many difficult texts. I am not shying away from all of these questions. But at the end of the day, when we construct theology, uh, the question is how we construct our theology, which texts are paradigmatic for our theology. Where is Christ in our theology? Where is the Sermon uh, on the Mount in our theology? And I'll leave obviously these difficult texts for for Brandon to handle, and, <laughs> you know, provide the solution. But uh, like I'm just to to finish with one anecdote. Uh, one uh, a colleague of mine uh, at London School of Theology. I remember in 2014. Uh, Israel waged a horrific war on Gaza. And uh, this, this friend uh, who I later discovered is a Christian Zionist actually could evoke Joshua in order to justify what's happening in Gaza. He was asked, what do you think about, you know, like Israel is killing women and children. They are like cutting trees. They are like doing horrific things. And his answer was, well, this is what they did in the book of Joshua. <laughs> So uh, the Bible has lots of stories and lots of texts, but it is what we uh, what we do with them, how we read them, is the is the question that uh, Jesus asked this expert of of the law in Luke ten. You know, what do you read in the Bible, and how do you read? Is the hermeneutical question? How do we read these texts? What do we make of them? What they are, why they are there, you know, what is their value in our theology and in our lives today? They are not texts to be copied and pasted, you know. Uh, you know, some some people, you know, they cut these texts from their original context, skip the cross, skip Christ, skip the New Testament, and want to apply them, you know, to the modern state of Israel. And this is this is not how you handle sacred texts. You know, this is not high view of scriptures. High view of scriptures is when you study the text, you know, rigorously in its original context. And if you're doing Christian theology, your interpretation need, needs to pass the New Testament and Christ, uh, or else it is no longer Christian theology. I mean, 
So as a kind of final note, what is the, th you know, I've, I've been asking this uh, all, to all of our guests on this series, but I would love to hear from you, but what is the one thing that you are hoping and praying for? My hope, I have a very high ecclesiology. I, uh, I don't know if I am right or wrong, but my hope is in Christ and his church. Uh, the body of Christ, where is Christ on earth? When I ask my, myself, he's in the church. You know, the body of Christ is the church and the church is called to be the light of the world. And I take this, I read this as the church is called to be the moral compass of the world, telling the world what is right and what is wrong through word and deed. You know, and if we lose this, if the salt loses its saltness, then it's not good for anything but to be trampled upon. So we should not lose our saltness. We should not lose our light. And my hope is, is in the church, the, the church that, you know, the, the, that works and prays and, you know, wholeheartedly, God, may your kingdom come. You know, this is a prayer that we pray every day. But I think we need to emphasize, you know, more living that prayer, you know, the, the kingdom of justice, righteousness, and peace now here and now people when when they they ask us you know uh, sometimes they ask it and they know the answer you know what would you uh, you know they, they would ask us what do you think the solution is for israel palestine and, and in their head they would say ah uh, there will be no solution here and now jesus will come and finish it all etc the armageddon happen and my desire is for brothers and sisters instead of ask if, in, instead of answering this way to to say i have hope that justice and peace will happen in the here and now you know, the kingdom of god will come in the here and now and i will take my role in bringing god's kingdom not wait you know until you know some armageddon war, war will happen and you know in these distant lands and you know destruction will happen so that my eschatological scheme will be fulfilled you know just to live our prayer live the lord's prayer you know your kingdom come your will be done here and now well thank you so much tony for sharing you. Um, your story we really appreciated having you on today thank you thank you guys <music>